0: This is Toronto today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news, today's talk. Six forty, Toronto. Um, I want to get your calls and your text messages on what you expect to happen with healthcare in the next few years. Um, the provinces and, and their leaders will meet the prime minister tomorrow, and so there's thirteen premiers and one prime minister, and I'm sure some of staff, health minister, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. I'm actually really confident that we're starting to have what I call big boy and big girl conversations about healthcare. I think we're starting to realize that we can't just take money. We have to be innovative. We can't just pour money into a system that has stopped working. I'm confident that we'll recognize that this system that we have right now is benefiting too few people. And it isn't benefiting you or me. I want to know what you think about it. Because there was all this outrage when Doug Ford and Sylvia Jones said, we're going to do this and we're going to have more clinics take on more surgeries because of the backlog, and this will be a permanent thing. It's not a temporary Band-Aid. And then there are a lot of people yelling, we can't go down that road and become the U.S. system. Something literally nobody is recommending and nobody logical is expecting. 416-870-6400 is the phone number here. I got a lot of confidence that we're going to move in the right direction here. I also think that we're starting to recognize that a lot of what fails our system amounts to either incompetence or cruelty, but it's not neither. We have millions of people in Canada suffering and waiting for help. They wait in hallways to get looked at in emergency rooms. They wait for life-altering surgeries. I use the example, they do everything right for six, seven decades. They get old. We all will. They get old and then don't have the choice to even pay out of pocket, if they so choose, to expedite a surgery when there are surgeons ready here to do those surgeries. I don't want to become the United States. I've said it 38,000 times. And by the way, what I can't tell, and I had somebody who kind of is in tight in the NDP, and I will tell you, because this is not something you're going to hear from Jugmeet Singh, who's been very vocal and adamant. Going down the wrong path here. Justin Trudeau is going to let the premiers privatize our health care. A lot of it's private already. And Marit Stiles, who was uh, uh, just uh, officially elected um, NDP uh, Ontario leader over the weekend. I think that's a smart person here. I think that's a smart person. But she's made those same statements as well. Many European countries have figured this out. Many countries have figured out a way to have a balancing act. To make sure people have choice, to make sure people can get reasonable access to diagnostics, to quality medical um, treatment, to surgeries, et cetera, et cetera. Many people that have sick kids are able to go snap of a finger and get it done. Look, we can't allow this to keep going the way it's going. We are treating people really cruelly. This isn't who we are. This isn't what we want. And my point about the NDP is I wouldn't call um, this person an NDP insider, but they're almost thinking that they're looking for a way off this tree branch. They're out there. It's wrong. Keep it the way it is. Exactly the way it is. No, private, no privatization whatsoever. It's not going to get them elected. It's not going to get them any votes at the ballot box. And if you can reframe health care, figure out a way to do it, get, us, get ourselves out of the crisis, get ourselves into a position that generates greater utilization of services. Um, supply and demand works itself out better. People aren't waiting in, in hallways anymore, okay? These things are going to be magic at the ballot box. You fix this, you figure it out, you figure a way to have a hybrid happy medium system. If you're the Ontario Liberals, if you're a federal party, you're, you're dealing with magic here because the NDP seems to want to put money into the system and change nothing. This game benefits some people right now. There's no question about it. And again, every time I mention it, people are very, who know the system are very much like, keep going, you're on the right track, keep going, you're almost there. When it comes to how many people, how many administrators, how much fat at the top, how many VPs, how many presidents, how many associate presidents there are in the hospital system right now. They're perfectly happy, perfectly happy with the current system. And the rest of us aren't. And no question, so many Canadians are frustrated by our health care right now. They want better. And I want better as well. I don't want the United States, but I don't want the status quo. And I'm confident we're going to go somewhere. I really am. I really am confident. And I'll tell you something quickly. Pierre Polyev is a little bit worried Justin Trudeau is going to figure this out and do the right things here. I don't know if it's the difference between him getting elected again or not, but you're already seeing the federal liberals have, I think they've had a really good four or five days here. The gun, the gun registry, the MAID, uh, they're, they're absolute losses for them. And somehow, at least temporarily, they've turned them into wins. They see the poll numbers. They know what you're thinking. Jeff, you're on 640 Toronto in Toronto today. Jeff, thanks for the phone call. Go right
1: ahead. Hey there. Thank you for, you, for yourself and the way you cover the news. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> the, um, so my only thought, I mean, there's so many different things we can talk about. But personally, my thought is I don't want this stipulation of the government database for their Ontario citizens, federally, mm-hmm. that's not that's not okay with me. Um, otherwise, you know, the the federal funding for proportion for the provinces, I'm all in. Let's do that. But it obviously is just more than money.
0: Oh, it's a ton more than money. It's uh, it, it look, there's service issues as well. There are some things we do well, and we know that um i've i've told this story so my kid had a knee surgery three weeks ago he waited basically four months from the time we had the surgery scheduled and it got moved up a month we were shocked at that we were like this could only go in one direction like like waiting longer but i'm telling you had we had to wait so he'll be back doing what he's doing full on by it's end of april early may it's still a long recovery process it's a it's a knee injury but i wouldn't have waited eight months i'd have driven to the states And we would have sacrificed something else and we would have paid out of pocket. We would have done anything to get that 14 year old better. And we're not talking about a terminal illness and we're not talking about something that isn't going to get fixed at some point in time. And we're not talking about somebody living out their last five, six years in in better health than our system currently provides it. But we do a lousy job with service. We do a lousy job. We can't get how many people, how many of you can get a next day doctor's appointment? Most of you cannot. And in other countries, snap of a finger. And I will tell you, I, I just said I don't want the United States. When I lived in the United States, those were easy things to do. I need an employment. Okay, when can you get here? Here's six times. You pick the best one. That's how it went. So, and, and, and that was, those were in periods of time where I wasn't, uh, I wasn't breaking the bank uh, with a starting salary in doing what I do. I was not. We don't have that. We don't even have those options here. We don't have those options here. Wayne, thanks for the phone call. Go right ahead. I appreciate you uh, checking in. What What would you like to say? Hi, Wayne.
2: Oh, hi. How are you? Good. Thank you. Good, good. Um, I, I listen to your, your your radio station here a lot, and I get very depressed on stuff. It, it's very confusing. But uh, on the doctor uh, issue here, as I said to the lady I was talking to, yep. I, I, I'm 76 years old. And when I was a kid, like I used to get boils and stuff, right? We'd go to the family doctor and he would lance it right there in his office. Uh, these were like a doctor, so and so general practitioner. Mm. Um, the doctors today, uh, like I got a problem with my big toe, he looked at it. Oh, he's got to send me here. And then I went there and they want to send me somewhere else. And it, it, I don't know what the doctors do anymore.
0: Yeah, there is that There, there is that to to be concerned about. And there's just there's paperwork like there was that study the other week that documented just how much needless paperwork they're doing. Nothing's online. Why aren't your vaccinations online? It's so many civilized first world countries. You could look up you could put in your kid's health care number and you can look up your bank account, anything, anything to do with your bank, your mortgage, your investments, anything. Could you look up your kid's vaccination on a website? <laughs> like, what are we talking about here? So I think there's going to be some screws tightened. I think there's going to be some pressure to innovate, 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 try things because what we've been trying, which is very little of anything different has been rather catastrophic. It just has. And you have no freedom. You have no choice. You have no freedom. And it seems to me that's what people want. This is Toronto today with Greg Brady, Toronto's
1: news. Today's talk
0: 640 Toronto. Remarkable story in the Globe and Mail. And I really want to get the author on to, uh, to talk about it. And I've always I've always admired uh, the work he does. The headline, One Night in Oshawa, Overdoses and Dramatic Rescues Offer a Glimpse at the Opioid Crisis. And it all factors in with the weather and homelessness and the time of year and safe consumption sites and so many of the things we've been talking about. Marcus G. joins us now on uh, 640 Toronto on Toronto Today. Marcus, thanks for getting up early for us. I I really appreciate it. I thought this was just phenomenal journalism.
2: Oh, thanks so much.
0: It must have been quite the uh experience. I mean, you know, you stay around in the business long enough, you've seen some things, I've seen some things, but there's some pretty harrowing stories um on these streets. I mean the photographs alone tell the tale.
2: Yeah. Uh this was uh this was a remarkable experience for the photographer and I. We were uh we went out to Oshawa and decided to spend the day at that uh, corner store that I write about. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of homeless people and people who use drugs tend to come in and out all day. And we just wanted a chance to talk to them and see how their lives were going. And we happened to um, to witness uh, an overdose uh, that evening.
0: The people that you talked to who we would, I guess we would identify them as addicts. Do they, are they conscious of their addiction? It, like some of the quotes made me think they're, they're kind of happy. They're happy doing what they're doing. They know it's not ideal. They would like to have shelter. They would like to have circumstances be better, but they're not, they're not looking at a, at a sudden, you know, sea change in their life to, to get off what they're addicted to.
2: Well, you know, it's a, it's a struggle always. Um, it's such a um, I found over the years of writing about this, that it's just, we all know that addiction is, is hard to kick whatever kind it is, but um mm-hmm. With the drugs that are going around now, it's especially hard. And um, people, even if they do uh manage to get a new program or treatment or something, uh often have a relapse. Um, of course I've talked to many who who have succeeded It is possible, but it's not easy, that's for sure.
0: Marcus G's our guest from uh, the Globe and Mail. Um the the shelters as well. Um you note know, o- Oshawa's got very busy shelters, but as you note they're not for everybody and there are people this was certainly way more the case i think a year ago this time in toronto proper also um you could try and get people in they wouldn't go and and there were different requirements then there was the COVID factor there was do i have to get a vaccine there was all that if we're a year further away from that you're still finding it tough some uh, we're still finding it tough to get everybody on board with the idea that you can't sleep on the street.
2: Yeah, I mean for some people uh it just doesn't work for them. They may feel threatened in some cases. They uh, sleeping in a shelter there may be, you know, dangerous folks in there. Uh there may be rules about uh behavior that 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 they can't cope with and just general bureaucracy and so on. Um so some of them somehow even in the middle of winter when I was there uh, manage to survive. You know, there's a there's a drop in center at, in Oshawa that stays open all night, and they sort of doze in a in a in a chair, or they couch surf, you know, with with mm-hmm. with pals. And you know, it, it, it stagger, staggers me that uh, that you can do that um, and survive. But some prefer it to to shelters.
0: I know you wrote about, um, and you wrote about it in the fall, but in, in this story, and you wrote about it in the fall, as I said, you, an anti-loitering device. What is it, and, and what does it do?
2: So Oshawa um, put this device under, there's there's a big bridge just down the corner from that, just down the street from that corner store I wrote about, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of a broad, uh, modern bridge, and underneath it there's, there's space, um, and people would go down there to get shelter from the weather and kind of hang out and the the city said there was sort of disorderly behavior going on down there drug use and and so on and that people using a recreational trail nearby felt threatened and so on and so they put up this uh, device that sends out a, a sharp kind of beeping very high pitched uh, I, I went down there and it's, it is quite unbearable you can't be around it it's just it hurts your ears so uh, these things have been sold all over for mainly for teenage loitering, but here they're using it to drive homeless people away from under the bridge.
0: That's So It does it do enough to keep people outside the bridge, but none of the area residents seem and in fact, it sounds like the area residents. Seem with it because they don't want they don't want people loitering in their neighborhood under the bridge. But the noise doesn't seem to get to them. It only gets to you if you're under the bridge. They're they've got it obviously you know set a certain way so it doesn't bother everybody.
2: It's far enough away from any where anybody is living that that it doesn't seem to bother people. You can hear it when you're going over the bridge, but but not it's when you're on top of the bridge. It's not unbearable. I mean there's a mixed feeling in the community about it. Some some feel yes we there is too much um, yeah, disorderly conduct in the downtown and it's driving people away from downtown and you have to do something. Uh there's others who feel that this was a step too far, that it's sort of almost like one of those devices you put outside a mall to keep, you know, pigeons away uh with a with a hot cry or something that's just kind of in, inhumane to, you know, assault people's ears to keep them away from a place where they were simply hanging out and not really bothering anybody. So there's two schools of thought on that one.
0: The work that the EMTs have to do, um, the work that the paramedics are doing on the streets in downtown Oshawa, what were your observations? I can only imagine how difficult it is to... You're in life-saving circumstances and and sometimes you're saving the same person's life consistently. Um, That's got to be really... I guess, rewarding to save their life, demoralizing to keep having to do it multiple times.
2: Yeah, you're quite right. There are certainly people who, you know, have an overdose two or three times a day, and there's the same ambulance people saying, oh, here's this person again. They they seem to me, and, and when we witnessed this this woman having an overdose, they seem to me, the uh, EMS people, very humane, very efficient. Mm-hmm. Um, they were talked to the person in a you know gentle voice and said, uh, you know, how are you doing? Uh, asked for the asked, you know, various things about what they'd taken and that sort of thing. And uh, but yeah, it's terribly hard. A lot of EMS workers suffer from PTSD from doing this kind of work and a lot of have left the field because it's just constant.
0: I know there's there's going to be so much debate about, um, well, from the prime minister and the premiers about health care. And there's so many so much talk about housing and homelessness. Some of the people th- that I read the profiles of in your story, do you look and 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 say they're not at the point right now with their addiction where it's at Um to be able to to run their own lives, they couldn't have their own apartment. They couldn't pay their own utility bills. They couldn't like we 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 have to we have to be humane and make sure people aren't dying on the street and freezing on the street. But there's people that that I look at in your profile piece, and I think could they could they do everything on their own? I I'm not sure that they could given where they're at.
2: Yeah, I struggle with with that as well. I mean, I think you know providing housing and and so on supportive housing is is important and you know toronto is is doing a lot of that Um, but there is uh, a population particularly with severe mental illness that Mm. is going to be very difficult to house and so and we've seen some of these uh uh, random assaults in in toronto that have been so disturbing um and these are people who are sort of um very very difficult to 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 housing because they're not going to stay in the in the rental unit. They're going to, you know, they're not going to keep it in proper order, and they're going to leave. So there's a lot of debate about mm. now about do we do we try to get treatment to these people who 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 have drifted away from from our system and and uh, there's a mayor in Cambridge, Ontario who's saying you know do we need some kind of preventive detention for people who are severely mentally ill and potentially danger to themselves and, and possibly others
0: it's a really amazing uh piece, marcus thanks so much for coming on and, and talking about it and it's it's so important to all our communities it's it's not an oshawa-centric thing i think we're all seeing it in our own backyards thank you so much for the time today thanks for having me greg of course marcus g joining us uh, from the globe and mail i highly advise you to go read that um there aren't any easy answers but as he just said, he lays out some of the, you know, the the struggles like what is that fine line here? We can't just gift people um, a, an apartment and say, you know, here's your stove. Here's your here's your television. Here's your couch like they won't be able to handle that. How will they pay for that? And yet what is the sort of bottom line? What's the baseline that we have to provide people with? Other pl- other countries are figuring this out. Cities in the United States are figuring this out. And we're not quite there yet. This is Toronto Today with Greg Brady. Toronto's news. Today's talk. 640 Toronto. It's a weird scenario. Friday afternoon. I think we were all watching and speculating. It kind of started towards the end of our show in the eight o'clock hour that we saw this uh, white balloon in the sky. It was eventually shot down around Saturday afternoon, midday Eastern time uh, off the east coast of the United States. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, no less. Um, lovely, lovely place to go in February. And then you got some, uh, you got some sights in the sky as well. Um, so this was an unmanned high altitude balloon. The Chinese said it was for mainly meteorological purposes. I know I can't get it out of my mouth without smiling, but it passed over Canada for a long chunk of time and then re-entered the U S in Idaho. Um, there's sensitive military bases in Montana, who knew that uh, the American uh, American defense secretary said they were concerned that there was some monitoring happening there. So what does it all mean? Could Canada have reacted any differently? I'm always happy to have our next guest on uh, Smart Stuff uh, when it comes to security analysts. She's a former security analyst and associate professor at Carleton University and an author as well, Stephanie Carvin, our guest. It's great to have you on. How are you?
1: Hey, uh, happy Monday.
0: Yeah, happy. it is happy Monday. It was an interesting happy Friday when this – white balloon is up in the sky um, and you realize where it's from and where it's come from and gone. Stephanie, what were your thoughts Friday afternoon?
1: Um, I, well, you know, there was a lot we did, we've subsequently learned about this balloon that, uh, you know, it wasn't the first that actually there seems to have been several of these balloons that have come over some during the Trump administration uh, that there's now a balloon uh, believed to be in Latin America. And even the Canadian statement, about the balloon indicated that it was also tracking a potential second incident. So we don't really have clarification as whether or not that was referring to the Latin American balloon or uh, some other balloon that we don't even yet know about. So um, I think my thought on Friday afternoon is, okay, well, let's wait and see what this is. is I mean, it, it seems pretty clear that this was always intended to be some kind of surveillance. Yeah. Balloon, but that China would be so brazen as to actually deliberately fly it over the continental United States seemed a little bit, uh, I don't know, miscalculated, uh, but that does in fact seem to have been what has happened.
0: I bet there's an awful lot of high level conversations happening behind closed doors and not in, in front of the glare of the media among, you know, the experts, um, NORAD, defense ministers, people who are very engaged in, in national secure international security. What are those conversations like? Like, how concerning is this that uh, that this this may just be the first of many occurrences like it?
1: I mean, first of all, yeah, I mean, there would have been a lot of coordination, um, of course, the North American Air Defense or NORAD um, out of Colorado, of course. Uh, the number two of NORAD is always a Canadian. So, uh, the, the you know, if anything dealing with air defense in North America would have had high level engagement between the United States and Canadian governments. Absolutely. Uh, it does seem to, you know, we've heard statements that, uh, you, you know, the U.S. and, and NORAD, they, which would include Canada, as they were monitoring this balloon, they seem to have been trying to study it and trying to figure out what exactly it would do. But you know, Greg, I'm sitting here mm-hmm. and I'm kind of like, you know, <laughs> I, I teach a course on on national security. I teach courses on espionage, and you know, we talk a lot about the different kinds of intelligence gathering that's out there, right? Um, cyber espionage is huge. You know, uh, gathering information through what we call the global information infrastructure. Um, what about um, uh, you know all the kinds of satellite imagery, geo mm-hmm. all this stuff. I'm like, what are they realistically getting from a little? I mean, it's a big balloon. But it's like it's a balloon that can only get so much, and I, I keep scratching my head, thinking, what What was the purpose of this? And I think that's possibly why it wasn't shot down right away. I mean, I think that you know, in in the, you know, when you're doing these kinds of operations, you don't automatically mm-hmm. out yourself to the spy you're chasing. I think a lot of times you're just trying to figure out, well. What is it that they're actually up to? And that may have been the case here of just trying to figure out. Okay, well, well, what is the purpose and what is China up to when it sends these balloons over?
0: Stephanie Carvin's our guest on Toronto Today six forty Toronto. What are the odds we would have shot it down? <laughs> I know, well, I, I, yeah, you laugh and it's right to laugh because that's just that'd be very un-Canadian to blast a, a white puffy balloon out of the sky in in uh, in you know in central Alberta and, and bring it falling. China would not not like that, I
1: feel like. Well, I do think that, you know, I mean, they did wait until it went over the ocean to shoot it down. I'm assuming just for safety purposes. Now, I'm not sure if that was a consideration. I have heard that there's been a weather balloon and they tried to use, I guess, a C, uh, you know, one of our C-18s or CF-18s to try and shoot it down. And it didn't work. So, uh, And they used a missile in this particular case uh, to actually launch fire from an F-22 of all things. Uh, to bring down this particular balloon so uh, apparently these things are actually kind of tricky to bring down so so that may have been a, another another part of this maybe maybe eventually when we get our new uh you know f35s we'll be <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have our balloon shooting capacity augmented but uh yeah I, it's I think that's But that's that's going to be a question that's obviously going to be asked. Like, why didn't we shoot it down? Again, it may have been the fact that they were actually following this thing, trying to figure out, okay, well, what's the purpose here Mm -hmm. uh, before doing it, uh, rather than, say, any particular technical capability.
0: I mean, there's obviously critics of of the government, but also critics of our our policy thinking it's it's too friendly with China. Michael Chong, the the MP, has been very outspoken on this, and he's noted a few other things, the interference in our elections, Chinese police stations. And he's been you know, he's been consistent, if not anything, about being concerned about any sort of relationship, sharing research, sharing funding with um, with China's government.
1: Well, I think Mr. Chong Green's a very good point. And I mean, like, this is why I'm kind of like, I'm not that concerned about the balloon because, like, everyone was going crazy about this. balloon, And honestly, like, this is when social media is at best, right? I don't know how many funny things I saw about the balloon online. But um, I think this is this is the point that, that needs to be made. It's that, um, you know, we're worried about this balloon, but, you know, The the satellite, the the spying on on, on cyber espionage, I mean, we're being hacked as we're having this conversation, like literally right now, the foreign interference. I mean, all of this is going to have a far more grave effect on our security, but we don't worry about it because it's so clandestine. Right. We don't see it. It's not in front. of. It's not flying in the sky above our heads, which is, again, that actually raises the question about, you know, kind of like Chinese judgment here, what they were thinking uh, when they decided to launch these things in the first place. But, um, yeah, I mean, there's far more serious national security and defense threats, I think, coming from China as we speak right now. Than, um, than, than, like you know, inflatable spy balloons. I guess
0: I, I think it was something. Um, you know, I, I'd call myself. I, th- I think I'm a few years older than you, but I, I was a Cold War kid, right? So that the biggest oh, yeah. threat for me as a teenager or as a kid was, oh well, the United States and the Soviet Union will eventually, you know, use nuclear weapons against each other, and we're stuck in the middle geographically. But I don't. I I, I wonder how many Canadians really like you said. There's so many kitchen table items with regard to interest rates and food and and the economy etc that you worrying about u.s china relations i get it it's not at the top of the list but to go back to those cold war moments it wasn't something we totally put out of our minds that that something could kick off and it'd be very bad for us being stuck in the middle though we would obviously align with the united states when it comes to china
1: i mean this is always going to be our challenge when it comes to foreign defense and national security policy right that um, you know, I mean, uh, people are worried about hospitals right now and passports mm-hmm. and food prices and gasoline. Um, to some extent, that all has to do with some, maybe not so much the health care, but, um, the, you know, all these kind of global things. Global stability has an impact on the kitchen table, right? Um, but Canadians, you know, we've been surrounded by three oceans. Um, we have a mostly benign neighbor to our south. Uh, that doesn't usually bug us too much. And we've never had to worry about these things. I was in Finland over in in October and, uh, you know, with the war going on in Ukraine, I mean, they're there, right? Like they're there and everyone there is taught to prepare. Uh, They all have, um, you know, like emergency kits are all trained. Um, You know, I don't think we have to go the full Finland, for example, but like geography has an impact on, on security. And we've always had the luxury of not having to worry about it. But as our national security threats change over time, to this kind of cyber espionage, to uh, clandestine for interference issues, things that aren't visible but are going to have an immediate effect uh, or an eventual effect, I should say, on our national security. These are the things we need to think about. Do we want to spend money and resources on this? Because eventually, uh, you know, A, they, they're, they're going to affect us in some way that we don't like and are, and are not going to be, do, be able to do something about. Or alternatively, our allies are going to get together and solve these problems without us and we won't have a say in how this is actually done. So I think this is always the reason why I think we need to spend more time thinking about these things. But honestly, uh, you know, we're, we're a very fortunate country, and that kind of makes it hard to focus on these, I think, broader global issues.
0: Yeah, I think I think that's true. You know, I, I know people think you've seen sort of the, the data and the numbers involved of what we're spending to to help fund Ukraine, fight off Russia's incursion, but per capita – Belarus is spending way more. Poland's spending way more. is spending way more. Why? It's right on their doorstep. It's right uh, at their front step, basically, uh, this war. And they got a lot more to be concerned about geographically than we do.
1: Yeah, exactly. We don't have to worry about tanks rolling into Canada. It'd be very hard to roll them. Unless you've got some really, really, really big balloons. I think it would be very hard to, to roll tanks into Canada. So, yeah, and I think that that's just it. So, you know, the question is, what do we want to do about this, right? You mm. know, and it's not just. Spending money, spending And I always want to make this clear. It's like, you know, in a lot of cases we have the budgets, but what we don't have are necessarily the correct legal authorities. Right. If you look at the CSIS Act, for example, it was written in 1984 and the most high tech thing in 1984 was a fax machine. But that's still the kind of fundamental basis of our laws and how, you know, and, and that's what governs the way our national security agencies effectively deal with data. And, you know, so how do we want our yeah. agencies to function? Uh, not necessarily to fight off balloons, but to fight off uh, some of these other threats in this kind of more, uh, you know, gray age uh, where, you know, we're going to have to worry about things like artificial intelligence and, um, you know, uh, the fact that we're always emitting data and we put our lives on our cell phones. So what? how do we right size? Mm-hmm. what we want our national security agencies to do without giving up our fundamental freedoms or right to privacy
0: this is why through movies and music sometimes i just pretend it's 1986 again and i shut it all out i just this <laughs> life was so much music. so much simpler worrying that uh that yuri and Dropoff was going to fire nukes over uh over yellow knife and then oh no they'd get us that was our biggest worry back in 1986 i loved having you on thanks so much for the uh the insight on this
1: hey thanks for having me on
0: stephanie carvin uh former national security analyst joining us on Toronto Today.